After the sermon, the song of response is hymn 18. Hymn 18, stanzas 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you sometimes unsure of God's promises? Guess what? You have a lot in common with some of the people in the book of Genesis. Genesis has a lot of episodes of God's people wrestling with the reality of what they see around them and what God is promising them in His Word. And even even Abraham had times when he wrestled, had times when there were doubts, when he needed confirmation when he needed to see what God was promising. And if we look at the verses before our text, brothers and sisters, Genesis 15, verse 1, just after Abram has emerged out of, out of battle, and perhaps he's still thinking about, you know, what if these tribes, one of, one of these tribes retaliates? There's some concern in his head. And here the word of the Lord comes to Abraham and he tells him to not be afraid because God is his shield. God is his very great reward. So Abraham knows that he's safe. But he's asking in verses 2 and 3, Lord, you know those great promises? You know those promises you made me about making me into a great nation? Those ones? I look in front of me, I look in front of me, and I, I don't see these promises happening. I see Eliezer, my servant, so I guess I'll be working with what I've got. And then in verses 4 and 5, the Lord is telling Abraham, Abraham, you need to see beyond what you're looking at. You need to see with eyes of faith. Come outside, Abraham. Come outside and look at these stars. Look at the stars, Abraham. Those stars, so shall your offspring be. And then in verse 7, the Lord repeats another promise that He's made. The promise of the land. Verse 8, here comes Abraham with a question I think we can all identify with. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know that I will gain possession of it, O Sovereign Lord? I think all of us struggle with doubt from time to time. So there again, the Lord is giving Abraham visuals, things that he can see in front of him. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to see as well. We need eyes of faith so that we might gain possession of God's promises. So let us go and see with Abraham. God's word comes to you under the following theme and points. Like Abraham, we need to see to believe in the promises of God. First, we need to see what the promises are. And second, we need to see how God confirms them. So just, just before our text then, where Abram is butchering these animals and he's arranging the halves appropriately, 
one on each side. So if we were to take an aisle of the church here, and Abraham is cutting the animals in two, and one half goes on one side, and the other half goes on the other side. The sun is beginning to set. And this isn't the, the romantic couple on the beach watching the sunset type, type idea. That's not supposed to be what we're envisioning. But this is more, it's getting dark out. And soon I'm not going to be able to see where I'm going type setting. And what is fascinating, as someone points out, is that what is happening physically, so it's getting darker, the sun is setting, this is also happening to Abraham on a spiritual level. Things are going dark for Abraham. As God causes darkness to fall, not only upon the earth, but also to fall upon Abraham. And the dreadful darkness described, it's a state of anguish probably comparable to what you might experience when you find yourself in the dark and you get that sinking, that sinking feeling, that terrified feeling. How God, how God makes him feel is actually in accordance with the first part of the message that he is about to give Abraham. In another notes that what the setting here, it's like the eerie music before the scary part of the movie. Kind of that dun-dun-dun. So something's about to happen here. And what God then says to Abraham is, is no for certain. No for certain, Abraham. And what an answer, brothers and sisters, to Abraham's question that brought this all about. His heartfelt question, how can I know? Of verse 8. And so the Lord responds, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Now when God told Abraham that his descendants were going to be strangers, Abraham would have known exactly what the Lord was talking about. He'd been a stranger. He knew what it was like. Hebrews 11 verse 9 talks about it and says that by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. And when the Lord describes the country that his descendants are going to be enslaved in, mistreated in, we know, of course, the kids have learned this in school, I think, that that country is Egypt. And that enslavement and the mistreatments are described in Exodus, where they have to build peace... Pithom and Ramses, these great storehouses for the Pharaoh. And also in Exodus 3 verse 7, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. 400 years, brothers and sisters, I think we can be sure that more than one Israelite, after a a hard day's work in the sun, after a day's beatings, would think, what's the use of being one of God's people when we're being treated like this? Is this what life is about when you're one of God's people? In Hebrews 12, after the Hall of Faith, where it describes many Old Testament saints who persevered through hardship 
Verse 11 says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. God was preparing the Israelites in Egypt for the promised land, for something great. Now, brothers and sisters, last, last week in Providence, there was a meeting for the office bearers where stress was discussed, how office bearers should deal with, can and should deal with stress. And some of the brothers really opened up about some of the hard times that they've been through. And looking back, even though it wasn't pleasant at the time, looking back when they went through those times, and I'm sure we've all been through those, those times, looking back when they've been through those times, they could see God's hand in it, and it increased their faith. And so there's times when we might ask, like the Israelites in Egypt, what is God doing? Why does it hurt so? And it can be hard to see that we're being brought closer to Him, that we're being refined, that He's preparing us for heaven. And perhaps an illustration helps. If you think of a child who's going on a vacation, perhaps even a place like Hawaii, and the child instead of being excited and really seeing what this vacation is going to be like, the child isn't feeling very pleasant. He doesn't like having to do the chores that have to be done beforehand, to do the packing, to go to bed early, to behave on the crowded plane. All these things aren't very pleasant. In fact, the child thinks they're kind of like punishment. But when the child gets to Hawaii, then there's there's that amazement, that... Mom and Dad, I'm so glad you brought me here. Now it's all worth it. I understand now. Well, hopefully a kid would think this. I understand now why we had to go through all that. I never would have made it here of my own choice. So brothers and sisters, also in our lives, God brings us to heights, but it takes valleys to get there, to get to the heights. If we had a better grasp of how wonderful heaven is and how wonderful God is, we would more willingly say, God, it doesn't matter what it takes. I just want to get there. I just want to get there to be with you. Now in verse 14, God is promising Abraham that his descendants can know that he is a God of justice. And that Egypt will be punished. The beatings will cease. The injustice will stop. Their God will make sure in His good time, as hard as that may be to be content with sometimes, that God will remember the sufferings of His people. And there will be justice. Boys and girls, I think maybe you've drawn the pictures in school of the plagues. The plagues that hit Egypt. Think of God's justice. So not only is Egypt going down because of the way they treated God's people, but God's people, they're going up and they're going out. And this is where God's vision 
is driving. His vision to Abraham. It's towards those words, afterwards. Afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And Exodus 3 verse 22 talks about that. When the Israelites, they totally plunder the Egyptians on their way out of Egypt. And so we see how God takes care of His people. Now thus far, the vision has been about Abraham's descendants. The Lord also knows that Abraham is concerned about himself. And the Lord addresses Abraham's concern. And it says that he will go to his fathers in peace and that he will be buried at a good old age. Something confirmed by Genesis 25 verse 8 that Abraham indeed breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. Now, brothers and sisters, this may not be on everyone's mind equally, but I think, I think once in a while, depending on where you're, where you're at in life, the thought may cross the mind, how will the Lord take us? Will it be at a good old age? Or will it be by something... Something not so pleasant, something harsh, perhaps a cancer, or something terrible like Alzheimer's. And it's hard. We don't, we don't know what the Lord ultimately has in store for us. But when we look at the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, someone whose body was endangered in so many ways, but God's promises meant that his heart could be free of trouble. And contentment could be his lot in life, even as he was persecuted till they finally killed him. He clung, he held on to God's promises. Whenever you see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the guy's always clinging, he's always holding on to God's promises. You're kind of thinking, okay, that's going to ship, shipwreck him, okay, his faith, he can talk to me, I'll take that one. But he's always holding on. And that's the secret to living a good life despite the circumstances. Now as we return to what is being promised to Abraham, we see that God is promising that in the fourth generation, the fourth generation, the descendants will come back to the very land, the promised land where Abraham is making sandal tracks right now, where he is currently a stranger Four generations must be waited because of the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's not yet in its full measure. Now we need to understand that the Hebrew word door, which means generation, can also mean lifetime. And during, and during the time, can also mean lifetime. And during the time of the patriarchs, a hundred years is about a lifetime. A hundred years. You would think they had some, some, they would have less to stress about or something. Exodus 12 verse 40 says the exact time in Egypt was 430 years. About 430 years till the sin of the Amorites reached its full measure. Reached the point where God could no longer stand it. And that's a glimpse, brothers and sisters, of our God's patience, our God's long-suffering. These people had 430 years to repent. 430 years of enjoying 
His blessings, the wheat, the harvest, the children they received, the fruit. They grew rich, but they never bothered to thank God. They never bothered to change their hurtful practices, even as evil as abusing their children or even sacrificing them in the fire. And God was grieved. God was pained by this for 430 years. And so if we look from God's perspective, we can see how much that must have hurt God, how terrible that must have been. And brothers and sisters, that that gives us perspective, especially the brothers and sisters among us who are in university, who are in college, or perhaps the parents who have children in university or college, because there you're hit with all kinds of things, books, perhaps like Richard Dawkins' God Delusion, where the God of the Old Testament is seen as a bloodthirsty God, a heartless God, one who is exterminating the nation so that his own people can dwell. And brothers and sisters, we need to look at this from a perspective of justice. Isn't a lousy judge one who looks the other way when injustices are being done? who lets all kinds of terrible things just slide. The land descends into chaos and rioting and murder and all kinds of terrible things because the judge doesn't do his job. Similarly, when God punishes these people, he's letting the world know it can't get away with abusing children, with sacrificing children, with starving widows, with rape, with murder, with oppressing the poor. Our God is a just God, and He's impartial. And He says if Israel does the same things as the nations that they're kicking out of the promised land, then the land will also vomit Israel out. And we know that's what happened. Think of the exile. So brothers and sisters, that brings us then to our second point. We've seen God promises. We also need to see how God confirms them. Now we go back to sleeping Abraham. We see that the Lord has told him that he can know for certain concerning his descendants and himself. And yet, the Lord doesn't just leave him with his word. But just as Abraham saw the stars as an illustration of his many descendants, so now the Lord shows visually how we can know for certain that God's word is true. Verse 17 says that the sun has set, so it's it's completely dark. Not even a nightlight, boys and girls. The dark, however, is lighted up by a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch passing between the pieces. So if we imagine the halves of the animal, and the the aisle is in the middle of the animal, the blazing torch and the smoking fire pot are going between. Remember that the pieces passed between are the heifer, the goat, and a ram, each three years old, that Abraham had cut up. There are other cultures that can relate to this type of oath-taking better than we can. This type of contract-making. I guess 
maybe we're actually a little bit, little bit boring with just signing on a dotted line. Perhaps people in our culture would keep their word better if they had to pass through animals that had been butchered, cut up, and put on two sides, and then to think to themselves as they pass through, if I don't keep my word, if I don't do what I'm saying, I'm going to be cut up exactly like these animals. I think that's kind of an effective way of making an agreement. So the halves of the animals set up by Abraham would have been very familiar in his culture. Ancient Babylonian and Aramaic texts indicate this. Also, there's an example in Jeremiah 34 of the Lord saying that the men who have violated the covenant with him will be treated like the calf they cut in two and walked between the pieces. That's how serious this covenant making is. What you're essentially saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, I know I'm going to be cut up like these animals that I'm passing through. Now, now what, what is so fascinating about our text is that Abraham, he's certainly not passing through. He would have to be sleepwalking. Abraham is still in his deep sleep. Only a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch are passing through. What does that mean? It's, it's pretty strange to us. The Hebrew words used to describe that smoking fire pot and that blazing torch are the same words used to describe God when he's present at Mount Sinai. And the torch is often used by prophets to describe the awesome and the fearful presence of God. Based on this, it's clear that it's God himself passing through. What's going on here? Shouldn't Abraham have been woken up? Abraham, wake up! So that he could walk through the pieces as well? Isn't that how it's done in the ancient Middle East? Both parties were to say, if either of us break our word, we will be like these animals that are cut off. And yet, brothers and sisters, God is alone as he walks through the pieces. Abraham is but a spectator of what's going on. So what is God saying here? In verse 18, we read that on that day the Lord made a covenant. And when it says in the Old Testament that the Lord made a covenant, it's the idea of God cutting a covenant, an Old Testament expression for relating with his people. And he's making the covenant, and he says to Abraham, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. And then verses 19 to 21 describes the nations who live there. So when God walks through the halves of the animals, he is answering Abraham's question. Remember from earlier, how can I know? How can I know that I will gain possession of it? And here is God's answer. God's guarantee of both covenant promises, both the land and the descendants. He's effectively declaring that if it doesn't happen then I, God, will suffer the fate of these animals. These animals that you, Abraham, butchered and cut in half. So the covenant is unconditional. Most covenants like this were conditional. If one party broke the covenant, then their lives were forfeit. 
But here we only have God invoking upon Himself the curses of the covenant. If the covenant should fail. Brothers and sisters, here we can't help but just stand amazed at the mercy of our God. If the covenant depended upon God's people, there would be no relationship. There would be no life with God. Yet, because of the unfaithfulness of God's people, the covenant curses, they've got to rain down on somebody. Somebody must be cut up. Well after Abraham's time, a Jewish man, a Jewish prophet, Isaiah, speaks of someone who will be led like a lamb to the slaughter, someone whom the Lord will crush and will cause to suffer, who will endure the curses of the covenant. And centuries after Isaiah, that someone, both God and man, and as another points out, he had the darkness fall upon him. He was cut off from the land of the living. And all the curses intended for those unfaithful to God's covenant rained down upon Him. The covenant made with Abraham was kept in this way. God's people were unfaithful, but God passed through the ocean of God's wrath. Fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, was pierced. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was slaughtered, and he was as dead as those animals that God in Genesis 15 passed through. And brothers and sisters, that's how today we know that God's promises are confirmed, that they are true. Abraham, he didn't have the full picture of what the unconditionality of the covenant would look like, but we do. We know from Hebrews 9 verse 15 that Jesus is the new mediator. His blood paid for the unfaithfulness of God's people. And as someone links earlier in Hebrews to Hebrews 6 verse 19 to 20, we read, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. Jesus is our hope because he did what we could not do and by doing it, he has become our hope and our anchor in life. Our hope and our anchor. Each, each morning, as I jog along the North Saskatchewan River, I see this boat, this wooden boat that just drifts there and looks kind of lonely. And I thought, you know, after the first day that it wouldn't be there the next day and it was just a one-time thing. But each day as I go out, the boat's always there and it's always in the same place, firm and secure. So I imagine it has an anchor. The current doesn't push it anywhere. It stays firm and secure. It's always in the same place. Brothers and sisters... What about you? What about me? Does the current of life push us around? Does it push us this way and then that way? Would people we know say that we're kind of here and then our hearts are kind of there and then we're there and then we're there? Are our hopes pinned on what is firm and secure? Or on things in this life that inevitably 
they're going to fade away. Everything in this life is like grass. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And if we pin our hopes on what is fading, our finances, our work, our friends, our spouse, the world, its pleasures, our children, our looks, these things are all fading. And they can be taken in an instant. We have to We have to find something firm and secure. Consider southern Sudan, now a new country. This country has lost so much. But there's so many Christians there that they know firsthand that their hope in God is what keeps things firm and secure. Or to illustrate again, even last week, I was just driving to Barhead and almost hit a deer at 100 kilometers an hour. And so the the car would have been gone, probably my health, just in an instant. Gone. Things are fading. We need to pin our hopes on Jesus. So yes, God's covenant is unconditional in the sense that the Son of God has fulfilled its demands. But it's also conditional that like Abraham, we got to hold on. We have to hold on to Him by faith. Only in Him are we firm. Only in Him are we secure. He's gone before us to prepare a place for us. And like Abraham, we must look forward to that place. The city with foundations, whose architect and whose builder is God. Amen.